So welcome back to part two of our podcast here this week on Come and See Inspiration, which is, of course, going out on the 31st of December, New Year's Eve. And also, of course, liturgically wise, it is the solemnity of the Holy Family. So what we're doing on the program this week, because it still is the Christmas season, we are continuing with our Christmas reflections. So we got th- we have three people this week who have generously contributed three, con- three reflections to the podcast this week. So first up, we have a lovely reflection from Noreen Lynch. Noreen, of course, a great friend of the podcast, the director of the FCJ House of Spirituality in Spanish Point. And gives us a lovely reflection, uh, which and her piece of music is Oskul McCree by Deirdre Nihileda. A reflection on Epiphany, 2024. There were two types of seeking in Jerusalem that week. Three wise kings, three men came into the place and asked, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to adore him. And Herod replied later in the text, go and diligently inquire after the child. And when you have found him, bring me word again so that I may come and adore him. And we know from years of hearing the story that one searching was searching for a person. The other was searching for a problem. That the men searched in order to adore. Herod searched in order to destroy. The wise king, they searched with wonder for someone who might inspire. But Herod searched with terror, with a kind of despair, afraid of anything that might challenge him. So searching for Jesus is a bit more complicated than we thought. Many have spoken the name of Jesus of Nazareth, of Jesus the Christ, of the Messiah in this season of Christmas. Some have used words of love and inclusion. Some have used words of fear and exclusion. We need to step back and listen again to the scripture. Who is this Jesus we claim to follow? And how can we know that we are following his star and not being led by another's fear? Who is this Jesus who calls people from all over the world to this place where he is? And how is my life being lived following that star? So after lots of words, this epiphany, this Christmas season, after lots of words, this Christmas season, I share with you two poems about the epiphany. And I invite you to consider how God is calling us all to live in 2024 in fear or in hope with wonder or with dread. The first poem is by a well-known liturgist, Malcolm Greet. And it's worth remembering before we hear the two poems that, of course, it was first assumed that Jesus, the Messiah, came only for the Jewish people, that one group of people would be saved. But the arrival of the three kings, when we hear this story, broke open the idea that God and God's love was intended for all God's creation, for all people. The Magi by Malcolm Greet. It might have been just someone else's story. Some chosen people get a special king. We leave them to their peculiar glory. We don't belong. It doesn't mean a thing. 
But when these three arrive, they bring us with them. Gentiles like us, their wisdom might be ours. A steady step that finds an inner rhythm, a pilgrim's eye that sees beyond the stars. They did not know his name, but still they sought him. They came from otherwhere, but still they found. In palaces, they found those who sold and bought him, but in the filthy stable, hallowed ground. Their courage gives our questing hearts a voice to seek, to find, to worship, to rejoice. Can you hear how Malcolm is inviting us to come out of our fear and our sense of keeping God to ourselves and to really begin to see that at this start of the year, that God is inviting all, calling all out. Their courage gives our questing hearts a voice to seek, to find, to worship, to rejoice. The second poem I'll share with you today was written on the occasion of a pilgrimage to Bethlehem by Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor and Dr. Rowan Williams, David Coffey and the Armenian Patriarch of Great Britain, Bishop Nathan in Advent 2006. Today, we think especially of our Palestinian and Israeli brothers and sisters who are suffering and who deserve an epiphany of love and healing now as we listen to this poem entitled Epiphany 2007. Four wise men came from the West to Bethlehem, a city sadly torn apart with iron walls and troops oppressed. They spoke of wrongs within the human heart. I thought Epiphany would come earlier this year. But years ago, when from the east three such men had crossed the sand, they laid their tributes at Christ's feet. But now our troops invade their shattered land. I thought Epiphany might never come this year. For what does now the future hold for me, for him, my Abrianic brother? What meant the incense, mirror and gold? Can we not change and learn to love each other? I hope Epiphany will come at last this year. How is God calling us to live this year? In fear or in hope? With wonder or with dread? Yes, we search always for God in our world. May we have the epiphany that God is always there before us, surrounding us in love, surrounding the universe he has created in love and inviting us to accept ourselves as beloved with all the wonder and awe that that brings to our life. Amen. So the piece of music we're going to listen to now was written on the Aran Islands. It's called Oskil Mahri, Open My Heart. 
and it's sung by Deirdre Nikaneda. It's especially written as a chant that you can pray and sing along with. So you'll hear the phrase, Oskal Mo Hri, open my heart, sang about eight times in a round, and each round is sang four or five times. I'd invite you to consider also that when you sing Oskal Mahri, you might also sing Oskal Mokriest, open Christ in me. And that is we open our hearts to the whole world that God has created and try and live in wonder and in generosity. That we might open our hearts and open Christ present already in us.
So that was Noreen Lynch's reflection there for us. And the piece at the end was Oscar McCree, which opened my heart by Deirdre Nicaneda. So our next reflection on the podcast this week is from a good friend of the po- from the podcast, which is Father Luke McNamara from Glenstall. Father Luke gives us a lovely reflection. Uh, no, it's a rather um, meaty reflection for listeners. So just to bear that in mind. Uh, and it's on uh, the, the, the crib. And his piece of music at the end is actually Away in a Manger by the Harry Christophers. Some 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus Christ was born in the world. We have a nativity account in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. And we have some later apocryphal Gospel accounts in the following centuries in the Gospel of James and Pseudo-Matthew. And these broadly take the information from the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, but embellish them with more details such as the washing of the infant Jesus by two midwives. And all of this tradition, this gospel tradition and subsequent tradition, has been taken up in hymns, prayers and iconography in the early church. And what I would like to consider with you, first of all, is the antecedents or what led to the development of the crib. And to do that, I propose to look at the icon of the nativity that they had in the East, because many of the elements in the icon of the nativity are very old and can instruct us on the symbolism that is operative in our cribs. So at the centre of the icon of the nativity, Mary and Jesus are there, right in the middle. Above, there is the star, and the angels. Beneath, there is a cave. There is an image of the midwives washing the infant Jesus and Joseph below. And then in the middle register, to the right and to the left of Mary and Jesus are on the one side the Magi and on the other the shepherds. So the icon depicts the whole cosmos the heavens above, the earth, and the underworld. And this indicates how far Jesus goes in becoming one with us by taking flesh. And the icon depicts many opposites. We mightn't think of them as such, but that's the way they would have been understood in the past. Uh, Firstly, of course, there are the opposites in Jesus. Jesus unites both the divine and the human. So we have Jesus, the infant, but we also have the heavenly host acclaiming him and the Magi and the shepherds as the Messiah. So there's this double contrast uh, in Jesus himself. And there's the contrast in those that come to Jesus. We have the learned, the wealthy, Um, the Gentiles, the non-Jews representing the Magi. And then on the other side, we have the shepherds who are poor, who have no learning, and they come on the other side. So it's significant that we have all the nations coming to Jesus to worship him, both the Jews and the Gentiles, both rich and poor, both the learned and the simple, both the clever and 
the uh, and those who are still like child. So all can come to Jesus. We have in the icon as well, we have elements of the creation. There are plants and animals. There are sheep uh, along with the shepherds. There are plants in the in the icon as well. And then there's the uncreated elements of the heavens above. So we have uh, the both uh, creation and the uncreated. We have the heavens and the underworld, the heavens above and the underworld represented with a cave below. As in our cribs, also in the icon, where we have Jesus in the center, we have him with an ox to the left, representative of the Jews, and an ass to the right, representative of the Gentiles. So again, once again, indicating that all people come to Jesus. And perhaps not only all people, but all of creation, all of the plant life and animal life are there to acknowledge Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah. We have also an indication of life in this icon. The birth of a child reminds us all of new life. But there is this striking contrast because this child is laid on in a feeding trough for animals. But in the icon, this feeding trough is atop an altar. So an altar signifies, of course, an altar of sacrifice, a place of death. So we have the death and life united with this uh, altar manger. And of course, the manger is a feeding trough and it points ahead to the Eucharist, Christ who will become food for us. So by Christ's death and resurrection, he becomes food for us, food that we might have life. Now, there are very early traditions in the Jewish literature, in the Midrash, um, about Bethlehem and the temple. In the temple at Passover, there was a, uh, the tradition of sacrificing the Passover lamb and also the Passover lamb in people's homes. Now, the Passover lamb must be a male lamb, one year old, and must be perfect. Now, there was a designated place where these lambs were reared. It was called Migdal Eder, which is a suburb of Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And there was a special category of shepherds, Passover shepherds, who would look after the sheep there and would pick out the perfect one-year-old lambs. Now, they would wrap them in a swaddling white garment and they would place them in special troughs where they would be examined to see whether they would be uh, fit for sacrifice on the Passover. And this was, they were quite strict about this. Now, we know, or we are told rather in the Gospel of Luke, that the angel appeared to the shepherds just outside Bethlehem. So to these shepherds, these Passover shepherds, the sign of the angel would have been understood differently. We think of it as the infant in swaddling clothes. It's a cute scene. But to these shepherds, here we have 
the infant Messiah taking the place of the Passover lamb. The Passover celebrates and makes present God's gift of new life that he once gave to the enslaved Hebrews in Egypt. God, in Jesus, has provided a definitive Passover lamb to redeem his people. So the message of the angel to the shepherds is not simply that the Messiah is to be born, but that this Messiah, by being uh, wrapped in the white swaddling clothes and being placed in a manger, uh, it indicates to them that he is to be the Passover lamb, the definitive Passover lamb. And so the Messiah will be the one who will redeem Israel and bring life, but by becoming a sacrifice himself. And this is an extraordinary announcement given by the sign of the swaddling clothes. It's something that we might miss. And that comes from the Jewish Midrash uh, about the story of Migdal Eder and the Passover shepherds. So the infant uh, Jesus in the icon is placed in a manger, but the straw is sitting upon a solid stone block, which represents an altar. And the sacrifice of the child that is just born on the cross is already indicated by this manger stroke altar. And for those of us who might miss the hint regarding the shepherds, because we're not Passover shepherds ourselves, the manger points to the destiny of Jesus's body, that it will become food for us. So if we take all these elements from the icon tradition, and we also uh, draw in the tradition in Bethlehem of reenacting the nativity of Jesus, the story of the nativity, we can imagine how much St. Francis learned when he went on pilgrimage in the 13th century to the Holy Land. He was enthralled by what he saw. He was delighted to participate in the celebration of the nativity, the reenactment of the various events, visiting the cave, visiting the shepherd's fields, visiting the cave of Jesus's birth, and so on. So this really brought the whole story of Jesus's birth to life for Francis. And St. Francis was rather struck uh, when he returned to Italy, when he returned to his native land, struck at the lack that they had, the people of his region, not having access to this reenactment of the Christmas festivities. And so he decided to institute the crib, the setting up of a crib. And the first crib in Europe was set up in 1223 in Greccio. And this was not a crib as we know it, it was a living crib. And the people processed out of the town of Greccio up a hill to this cave grotto, and there they had the ox and the ass, they had the manger, they had shepherds, they had everybody dressed in the role, and they prayed, and it was uh, an extraordinary uh, moment of revelation 
Um, and the this moment of revelation uh, of the coming of Christ into the world, not simply 2,000 years ago, but very much for Francis and the people of Greccio, caught on instantly. And so the celebration of the nativity with the reenactment of these live cribs spread like wildfire throughout uh, Europe. Now, the iconographic tradition that I mentioned earlier really uh, gave an underpinning to the uh, to the structuring of our cribs. At every crib, we have at the center Mary and the infant Jesus, and usually Joseph at the other side. That is a, an innovation in the West because Joseph would normally be apart. Why is he apart? Because we have the story in Matthew of him being uncertain about uh, the announcement of uh, the birth of a child, Mary, and he has to be reassured by the angel. And this is indicated in the icons by Joseph turned away, wondering and puzzling. Um, but in the Western tradition, we, we have Joseph at a later stage in the story, very much in a supporting role to Mary. We might remember in this year that Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. They had to leave because of Caesar's injunction that they would move from the north to the south of Israel. And this was a very difficult thing to do because Mary was heavily with child. And so we think especially of all those people today in our world, and particularly in the Middle East, who've had to leave their homes because of war. And many of them are heavily pregnant, expecting children. So the story of Mary and Joseph and the forced movement caused by the decree of Caesar is also at work today. But as God is with uh, Mary and Joseph and supports them in their need, God also supports those who have, who are downhearted and weary and provides them, those who trust in him, with strength to come through. And we pray particularly for those in Ukraine and in the Holy Land who at the moment are forced to leave their homes and to move to uh, temporary dwellings or no dwelling at all. In Bethlehem, we have uh, the Holy Family is depicted as being in a temporary dwelling, a stable. In the icons, they're usually in a cave. The, uh, the temporary dwelling is indicative of the fact that they had nowhere to go, nobody to welcome them. And again, we might think today of the many people coming from these war zones, trying to find a home in our country and in other countries, fleeing war and the possibility of being maimed or injured or even killed and coming to our safe land to find solace and security. So we remember them also as we meditate on the crib and the Holy Family. I would ask maybe that we reflect on a number of elements in the crib um, with 
um, with uh, when we go before the crib to pray, and we might think first of all of the presence of the animals, the ox and the ass and the sheep, and think of Christ coming into the world, the whole cosmos. And we've been thinking about, you know, the environment, COP28 and so on. But we are really thinking about uh, the care of the earth as our common home. And we have the elements of the animal life also involved in the story of Jesus and also the plant life. And often people decorate their cribs with greenery and flowers and shrubs. And that is wholly appropriate. In the early icon tradition, there are often plants and flowers, often indicating eternal life, evergreens. And we also have that symbolism at work in the Advent wreath. So it's striking that with the birth of Jesus, we're already remembering the gift that comes with the whole of Jesus's coming, the new life, the resurrected life that he will bring. Other elements that we might remember specifically with the animals are the ox and the donkey, who the prophet Isaiah says are the first to recognize the coming of the Savior. They are the ones at the feeding trough who recognize the coming of the Savior to Israel. And in a sense, by having the ox and the ass in the crib, it's an indication that this is salvation time. This is the time of Christ's coming into the world, the coming of the Savior into the world to bring us his life. They are, in a sense, pointing to a specific time, the time of salvation. St. Francis has spoken about, sorry, Pope Francis, <laughs> that's a little error on my part, but Pope Francis has spoken about the crib. He uh, had a short letter um, about the crib uh, just in 2019, and he wrote about the importance of the crib. And it is a really good way of opening the mystery of the coming of Christ into the world, not only for children, but for all of us. It gets us to think about the story in a wider sense, not just about what Christmas is for me, but what Christmas is for the human family and the world. And Christ's coming into the world brings about a renewal, not just of uh, the uh, human family, but of all the world. So there is this radical transformation of the whole world by the coming of Jesus into the world. And he comes as one who is small, who is poor, who is without a home, who is a migrant, a refugee. So many of these terms that are used as terms of abuse today and yet Jesus is the one who associates with those who are the most despised, the most rejected. So there is nobody beyond the mercy of God. And I think that's one of the one of the learnings from the coming of Christ in this manner into the world, that there is nobody beyond the mercy of God. The poorest, 
the most rejected, the most neglected, the most persecuted, Jesus is there among them, as he will be at his crucifixion. So we have this wonderful uh, uh, co, um, this wonderful sharing of Jesus with the destiny of all humanity, the destiny of all of us, whether we are rich or poor, uh, educated or not. Jesus is there, has come into the world for us all. The crib, finally, and the icon of the nativity uh, open up a space for us to enter into. The icon is not flat surfaced. It has a curve. And the curve projects out a space, a space into which we are invited to enter, a space of encounter. And in like manner, the crib. So we enter that space, we encounter Christ coming into the world, coming into the world, not simply 2000 years ago, but coming into our lives. And that is what is really Advent is all about. Christmas is about the coming of Christ into our lives. We don't celebrate something that happened 2000 years ago. We celebrate something that is happening here and now. And the chants that are sung at Christmas in Latin in the Abbey at Glenstall repeatedly say Hodie, 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 which means today Christ has been born for us. Today the angels appear to the shepherds announcing his birth. Today his mother Mary takes him in her arms. So the today of salvation is our today also. It's not a yesterday, it's a today for us. To conclude this meditation, I would uh, like to play the hymn that is well known to us, Away in a Manger.